Turn with me in your New Testaments, if you will, to Romans chapter 3. We had our scripture reading there, and we're going to consider the text there in a moment. We have quite a few with us today who are visiting, many in for one reason or another, and others that are perhaps just passing through. Many that I know are members of the church, and it is uh, an outstanding thing that you are out of town, but you found a place to worship. It shouldn't be outstanding, uh, but today anymore it is outstanding that uh, some who are traveling think it important to find a place that is sound to worship, and so we are encouraged by your presence today, and we hope that you've been encouraged by the worship here. Um, it's been such a, an edifying morning so far with Harry's sermon. That was such an excellent treatment of the subject, and I commend that to you, and certainly enjoy being able to worship God together. Foster always does an excellent job leading songs. I always look forward to him leading, and, and it's even better when there's so many voices that love God joined together in unison, singing praises to him and edification to each other. Maybe you're here this morning visiting with us, and you're not a Christian. You're not a member of the Lord's Church. I want to invite you and encourage you to open up your Bibles with us this morning and study with us. I would assume that if that is you, you're not a member of the church that we claim to be a part of. Maybe you are a member of a denomination. Maybe you just believe in God and you wanted to check this place out. I would assume that you probably have a confidence of your salvation, and we should have a confidence of our salvation. Uh, We're going to be discussing some matters like that. This morning, And so I would challenge you and all of us here to investigate the truth with an open and honest heart. You know, in Acts 16, when the Apostle Paul and Silas were put in prison, as they had cast out a spirit of divination, taking away the means of prosperity from some men taking advantage of that, they were singing psalms of praise and, and hymns, and there was, of course, an earthquake. All the doors were open. We know the account. They could have left, but they didn't. And this Philippian jailer, uh, based on the laws of that land, was responsible to the extent of dying for those criminals, those prisoners, if they were released and let let out and, and lost on his watch. And so that's what he assumed, and he wanted to kill himself. And we remember Paul stayed his hand. And when all of those events culminated and he realized that this earthquake was an act of God, that these men who were singing psalms and spiritual songs and, and praying, that they were obviously connected with this God, he asked a very important question. What must I do to be saved in Acts 16 and verse 30? That is the most important question that anyone can ever ask. It's the most important question that we can ask this morning But it's a loaded question, and I think that there is a depth to that question that sometimes we don't appreciate, at least in certain moments. And so even if you know the answer to that question and you have submitted to the truth, I would challenge you this morning to think about some things along these lines. I think that that question, what must I do to be saved? implied a number of things that the Philippian jailer came to an understanding of. He knew that he was in sin. But he didn't just know that he bore a personal guilt, but quite evidently, asking this question, 
he understood at least a little bit about this God that Paul and Silas believed in and were worshiping in that prison cell, that he is a just God. And that is why he asked the question. He is in need of rescue because he has committed sin and he is helpless. I think that's an implication there. What must I do to be saved obviously tells us that he must do something, but the very concept of salvation, to be saved, it's, it's a passive concept where God is saving him. While we have to submit to our part, we have a part to play, God is accomplishing that salvation, and this jailer knew that he was utterly helpless in the state he found himself, but having heard Paul, perhaps at another time, but certainly singing these songs, he at least assumed that these men have a knowledge of what that answer is. And I want to know what is the plan, what is the provision for my salvation, a lost and helpless soul in need of forgiveness. What must I do to be saved? And so we need to be careful about how we answer that question. We need to be careful and we need to investigate whether we do indeed have the right answer. And so continue into Romans 3 with me, and we'll just read what we had read for the Scripture reading this morning. And Lana did an excellent job in doing so, where Paul says there is no difference. All of sin and fall short of the glory of God, and he continues on to talk about this plan of salvation. That they are being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness. Because in His forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time His righteousness, notice here, that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And so that's the seeming quandary of the question, what must I do to be saved? What must I do having found myself in sin, period? Is there anything I can do? Because let me tell you that God is just. And His justice is on exhibition for the whole world to see in various points of human history, even to today, as He rules in the kingdoms of men, as He is a just God who is active in the world today, like Romans 1 and verse 18 says, His wrath is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. God is just, and He is not one to look at sin and wink at it anymore. He's not one to dismiss sin or sweep it under the rug. God is just. But we need justification, and we are guilty. We bear our own guilt. And God can't just overlook that and dismiss it. So how am I going to be saved? Well, it's not in man to know. Not of himself. This comes only through revelation. And that's why I invited you to study the scriptures with us because they are the answer to this question, what must I do to be saved? And it's not just some one-line thing, but it is an intricate plan that God has placed that we can understand that bears the depth of not just His love for mankind and His mercy and His grace and His extreme desire for all to be with Him for eternity. But all of that combined with the fact that sin must be punished. He is just. He is just 
and the justified. So the answer to the question, what must I do to be saved? It better fit that equation that God is still just even though you are guilty and now are pronounced innocent. He's still just. Sin was dealt with. And so let's consider that for a brief moment. That God is just. An immutable attribute of Him is that He is just. And that's what the context considers. Upholding and maintaining God's just nature. In forgiveness, in redemption, in salvation in the end, when people will be in heaven with God, it is with the maintaining of God's righteousness, of His holiness, of His justness. Harry pointed out in discussion of God's love this morning that His attribute of love is truly the culmination and fountainhead from whence all of the other attributes of God flow. All of His justice, His judgments, His his decisions, and His law that He's revealed... Love is who God is, and everything comes from His love. And so when we talk about God's love and how He doesn't want anyone to perish, He loves us and He wants us to be saved. We've got to understand what that love looks like. In John 3.16, when God loved the world and sent His Son, it was not this warm, fuzzy feeling that overlooked anything and everything else, where God was irrational the way that some who uh, speak of love are, that you need to just... Forget, don't think, but love. Well, that's romantic sounding, but that's not the love that is powerful in the New Testament. He is love, John, 1 John 4 and verse 8, but His love is inseparable from what we read in 1 John 1 and verse 5, that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. So if your idea of God's love includes the continuation of sin, you don't know God who is love. These are inseparable, and so it is with His just nature. When he seeks to justify man because he loves man and he does not want man to suffer an eternal death, hellfire. When he justifies man, he has to maintain his justice. It is within his nature. And this is what his justice means. When law is violated, Romans 3.23, sin, First John chapter 3 and verse 4, a transgression of law, that's what sin is, then there must be retribution. God never has let a sin pass without punishment. From the first one to the last one when He comes, sin never goes unaddressed. His wrath is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. In Romans 2, in verses 5 and 6, because of sin, the Jews were heaping up for themselves Wrath and the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render unto each according to their deeds. That's the just, immutable nature of God. In chapter 5 and verse 9, looking to salvation, it says we were saved from wrath. He's just. Sin must be punished. Romans 6 and verse 23, the wages of sin is death. Romans 8 and verse 2, there is a law of sin and death. And that's simply if you sin, you die. The soul who sins shall die, Ezekiel 18 says. And and that has always been the case, and it is the case today. If you sin, you die. So how, how does God maintain that immutable principle and characteristic of His person while keeping us from dying and saving us from that death? That's the quandary. 
And that's what the Philippian jailer understood, at least the very surface level at, at least. And, and he knew, I'm helpless in this state. If God is just, God cannot change. He does change. He will not change. His justice is unchangeable. Then we're in big trouble. All of sin and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3 and verse 23 tells us. In Romans 5 and verse 6, he describes those who find themselves in sin as those who are without strength. God demonstrated man's helplessness as he gave the law of Moses and showed that by this law and this law alone, you are completely and utterly helpless. He says in Romans 3 and verse 19, we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, just giving some scriptures that showed those people were in sin, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may be guilty before God. Notice, therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. He puts it this way in chapter 5 and verse 20. The law entered that the offense might abound. Utterly hopeless by ourselves. You can do as many righteous deeds as you want. After you've sinned, you are completely helpless because the justice of God means that sin is met with death. Separation from Him. This is why Paul says in Romans chapter 7 in verse 24, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death. Not speaking of himself as a Christian. He's not a wretched man as a Christian. He is making the point to Jews who are trying to hold on to this law for dear life, that under that law you are estranged from Christ, like Galatians 5 says. There is not that sacrifice provided under that law. And as long as you are under that law, having sinned, you are utterly helpless. But it's the same thing with anyone that is before and without Christ. Utterly helpless. Because there's something that the law cannot and could not do. It wasn't designed to do that. In chapter 8, he explains, The law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law of Moses could not do, and that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending His Son. What the law could not do, verse 3, is free me from the law of sin and death. Do you understand that? It could direct you in righteousness. It could show you the good way. But once you alter your steps from that which is directed by the law and you sin, you transgress, it cannot revive you. It cannot bring you back to right standing with God. You are utterly and completely helpless. And so what we have is foreshadowed in that law, and we see in chapter 3 that it is witnessed, this righteousness of God we'll get to in a moment, by the law and the prophets, we have foreshadowed atonement. But it cannot possibly be true atonement, because under that law, you are utterly helpless. So when he says in Leviticus chapter 17 and in verse 11, life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that make atone, makes atonement for the soul, he is proceeding to give a type of what will be the realization in the anti-type of Christ. There, there will be blood that is eventually shed that does truly provide atonement. But up to this point, no, this is just foreshadowing. In Hebrews 9 and verse 22, the Hebrew writer says, without the law, or, or without the shedding of blood, rather, there is no remission of sins. 
In chapter 7 and verse 27, then, the Hebrew writer is trying to stress that Christ is better than this old system, this new covenant better than this old covenant because under the old covenant in chapter 7 and verse 27 contrasting the the priest there with the high priesthood of Christ they had to offer daily sacrifices first for their own sins and then for the sins of the people you understand that it happened day after day after day when I sin I've got to bring that animal and the priest has to offer a sacrifice for me. Blood has to be spilled. Life has to be taken because I have sinned day after day after day. That happened. And then we get in Hebrews 9 to a discussion of an annual thing in verse 7. The second part of the holy place, the tabernacle, the holiest of all, the priest went alone, high priest went alone once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. You've got daily sacrifices and then so that God could stress even more so that those sacrifices, they don't really count for anything. They don't do anything for you. You are still utterly helpless. There is a day where all the sins during the whole year on the Day of Atonement are provided for in the shedding of blood. But I want us to notice what he says in chapter 10. The law, verse 1 of Hebrews 10, having a shadow of the good things to come, but not with the very image of the things can never with these same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make those who approach perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered. What does he mean by made them perfect? The worshippers once purified would have had no more consciousness of sins. If, if those dealt with the sin problem, then they would not have continued to be offered. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. You understand that? Back in... Uh, February, the beginning of the year, I, I sinned and I brought my offering to the priest and, and he shed that animal's blood. Okay, it's atoned for. The Day of Atonement rolls around and that same sin that evidently was atoned for back there is an offering for that same sin again. You see the, the point? That blood didn't work. This blood didn't work. Your sins are still there. And so he says in chapter 10 and in verse 8 that those sacrifices and offering and burnt offerings and offerings for sin you did not desire nor had pleasure in them which are offered according to the law. Completely helpless because the blood of animals hold nothing against the, the, the man and the sin that he has committed. God is just. What a troublesome thought that he is not going to let skin, uh, sin skate by at all. And I have done it. I have sinned. But the text says that he is the justifier. God is the justifier. He is just and the justifier. And, and the justification that maintains his justice in Romans and in other places of Scripture is described as the righteousness of God. Chapter 1 of Romans in verse 16 says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation. What must I do to be saved? God has good news. You can be saved. It is the gospel that saves you. And it's the power for salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. But if we stop there, we kind of miss why God's gospel is powerful. And it links right into certainly the inspiration of the gospel. But in that origin being God himself, the only one who could author a plan where he maintains his justice and I get to be forgiven of my sins. So he says, For in it, 
the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. The gospel has the power to save man because the righteousness of God is revealed in it. What is the righteousness of God? Consider very briefly in Romans chapter 10 and in verse 3, it says that the Jews there were ignorant of the righteousness of God or God's righteousness, and they sought to establish their own righteousness, so they have not submitted to the righteousness of God. Now, that tells us something important. The righteousness of God has nothing to do, or at least very little to do, with the fact that God is righteous personally. The Jews were not ignorant of that fact. If you understood the law at all, you understand as a Jew that God is righteous. He's holy. He's just. I don't have to know much to know that. That's not what they were ignorant of, though. They were ignorant of the righteousness of God. And notice there that it was something that they did not submit to, that they should have submitted to. And I think we begin to realize what that really indicates in Romans 3, when in verse 20, he says, by the deeds of the law, this system of the law of Moses, by that system alone, no flesh will be justified in his sight. Because by the law is the knowledge of sin, but not the forgiveness of sin. So he continues, but now the righteousness of God. What is that in contrast to? The deeds of the law, this law of Moses. And it is apart from that law, it's revealed, it's witnessed by that law and the prophets, as we've noted, this, this foreshadowing, this prophecy that's uttered. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe, for there is no different. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. You have the righteousness of God, which is a way that we become righteous before God. It is His plan, separate from the law of Moses, that brings us into a right standing with God. And He says it's through faith in Jesus. And so we understand what Paul meant when he said in Philippians 3 and in verse 9, he wanted to be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Jesus, through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. I can't do it myself because I've sinned. I can't, I can't bring myself back to life. The law can't do it. There's no provision truly for sin under the old law. That blood of, of animals does nothing. And so God, apart from that system, apart from anything that we could come up with ourselves, gives us a plan where I can be righteous according to His wisdom, according to His provision, according to His standard. God is the justifier through His plan of righteousness. And you know what? God is not just the justifier, but He is just and the justifier. The, the righteousness of God is maintained in this truth. And His Judicial wrath is satisfied. God is just. He must punish sin. And I need justification, which is forgiveness of sin, release from sin. But if God is just and retribution must be paid for that sin, then how in the world can I be justified before Him? The righteousness of God is the answer. But I want us to understand something very important before we get to what that looks like in Romans 3, as we've already read. That this, again, is married to the rest of who God is. His mercy, His grace, His forgiveness, His love, it's married to His justice. It's married to His 
wrath against sin. It's married to His truth. In Exodus 34, Moses had asked the Lord to declare His name to him or to show Himself to him. And and God said, I'll declare my name to you. And in verse 6 of Exodus 34, He said, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, is merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. You see how all of those come together? He is merciful and gracious and long-suffering, but He is abounding in goodness and truth. Can't contradict His truth in seeking justification. He doesn't just let sin get swept under the rug. He doesn't just clear the guilty just willy-nilly. He deals with the guilt. He deals with the sin. It's all married together. In Psalm 85 and verse 10, the psalmist said, Mercy and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed. You see those seemingly at the surface Opposed matters. Mercy and truth. Well, well, truth is something that if I go against, then I'm in sin. But mercy forgives me of that. And then you've got righteousness and, and peace. But if God is righteous and I've sinned, how is there peace? They all come together. He cannot contradict any facet of his character or of his nature. And so when we ask, how can we be justified when God is just? It's got to come within his plan. It cannot come outside of it. Can't fool ourselves. Don't deceive yourself. And so in Romans chapter 3, we have that. And what you have is a lot of forensic terminology that you would hear in a court. You you hear a lot of things that have to do with justice being served. He says in verse 22 that we are justified. The righteousness of God is that which brings us salvation and is revealed. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. But who do they believe in? They believe in Jesus. He continues, And on all those who believe through Jesus Christ, for there is no difference, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Notice 24, Being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth as a propitiation by His blood through faith. You see those terms? We're justified, he says, which means we are rendered just or innocent. But we've sinned, verse 23. And that's what we're being justified from. How did that occur? He says we're justified through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Is he dealing with sin? Absolutely. Redemption is the Greek word apollotrosis. Buying back a slave is what Art and Gingrich says. uh, From captive or making free by payment of ransom. A release from a captive condition. In chapter 6 and verse 16, the Apostle Paul said, Your slaves to whom you present yourselves to obey... He mentions sin leading to get to death. And he says in verse 17, you were slaves of sin. You were captive to sin. And so you need to be released. That's what redemption is about. And there is the one who pays the price. He is the redeemer. And there is the price itself, the ransom. In 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 30, Jesus is called redemption for us. He said himself in Matthew 20 and verse 28, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for all. Was sin dealt with? Yes, a payment was made. God didn't just look over it and forget about it. A payment was made, which comes to verse 25. Whom God set forth. He's the redemption, he's the redeemer and the the ransom price. God set him forth as a propitiation by his blood. 
that word in the original Greco-Roman literature, Arne Gingrich said, served as an instrument for regaining the goodwill of deity, concretely meaning a means of propitiation or expiation, a gift to procure propitiation, a means of expiation then, a place of propitiation. And the idea is that they've angered the gods and they've got to curry their favor. They've got to give them a gift to satisfy them, to, to turn their wrath away from us. And so this word is used in a similar sense where there is an offense and there is an exchange of a gift, if you will, similar to redemption, where there is the turning away of God's wrath. And he says what was the propitiation is Christ by his blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. Hebrews 9 and in verse 22, God's judicial wrath must be satisfied as it is aroused by man's sin. That means blood, which by metonymy is put for death. A death has to occur. Jesus' death is the only death that would turn away God's wrath for those who have faith in him. It's interesting that this word is... What is used in Hebrews 9 and verse 5, translated mercy seat under, over the tabernacle uh, or over the, uh, the uh, uh, Ark of the Covenant and the tabernacle and the holiest of all, where on that day of atonement, that's where the blood was sprinkled. That's the expiation, God's wrath being satisfied, sin being atoned for. That's why he says in verse 25 and 26, this was a demonstration of God's righteousness. God must demonstrate his righteousness. Someone says, Wait a second, what about all the gallons and buckets and seas of blood that was shed under the old law? That didn't demonstrate God's righteousness. Not to this degree. All of those sins were passed over to the ultimate demonstration of God's righteousness. May we never forget the price that was paid for our sin. And so here you have the justification of man within the just nature of God, by this plan of the righteousness of God, and he says that it's by faith apart from the deeds of the law. There's no boasting, verse 27. Where is the boasting then? Chapter 3 and verse 27. It's excluded by what law? Of works? No, but by the law of faith. We conclude that a man is justified apart from the deeds of the law. Abraham then is given as a case study of this. And notice in verse 4, he says, To him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as death. But we need to understand what this works means, because he's, he's contrasting again two systems. He's contrasting a system of the law of Moses, where if any man maintained righteousness under that law, it means he is perfect, because no blood that was shed under that covenant could wash away any sins that he had committed. So the conclusion must be, if he is just, if he is righteous under this law, then this is just a debt owed to him. He earned it. He's not done anything wrong. But obviously that can't be the case. All of sin and fall short of the glory of God. And so in verse 4, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. So when he says, him who works... It is perfect works, never sinning whatsoever under the law of Moses. It's not talking about obedience. We'll see that in a minute. And so Abraham is given as a case study. He hasn't found anything according to the flesh. Verse 2, for if he was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. Why? Because he wasn't perfect. He couldn't be boasting about that. Verse 3 then, quoting Genesis fifteen six. what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. So he is a case study set forth about how man is justified according to the righteousness of God revealed in the gospel, and it's a justification by faith. Now, this is important. 
Because he goes on to give an inspired exposition on what that means. What does it mean that he believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness? He says, Tim, who does not work, verse 5, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Notice, just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom the God imputes righteousness apart from works. That's important. Because you don't see that phrase in verses 7 and 8. But he's saying David is describing this system, how this works. That you believe God and you are given righteousness or righteousness is put to your account separate and apart from works. But what does that mean? Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. Now we have some accounting terms. I sin. God writes down in his ledger, Jeremiah sinned. That's put to my account. That's there. He can't just erase it willy-nilly. It's there. And he must give retribution in regard to that sin that is put to my account. Now, my righteousness then cannot be by perfection, not by works, not by perfectly keeping the works of, of the law of Moses. And so what David's righteousness was, as we know, Psalm 32 is likely written after he sinned with Bathsheba, and he's saying, blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not account sin. He's, he's erased that. That's not on the ledger anymore. He's, he's not seeing me as guilty. And so you have belief that is accounted for righteousness. And David says what that is really is belief accounted for the forgiveness of sins. But brethren, it's atoned for. It's not swept under the rug. Chapter 3 plays right into this. It's atoned for. It's accessed by faith. And so it's important to us because in Romans 4 and verse 16, Paul explains, it is of faith that it might be according to grace so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, uh, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham. He says in verse 23 through 25, it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him. What? Righteousness imputed to him. Forgiveness of sins. But also for us it shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus from the dead, who was delivered up for our offenses and raised for our justification. The same faith that Abraham had accesses God's gift of the satisfaction of his wrath in Jesus' blood, whereby we are accounted as righteous by faith. And that's important because he says it's the same faith that Abraham had. We walk in the steps of faith that Abraham had. What is that faith in Romans? I would suggest to you that it's very clearly an obedient faith that is put forth. And it's the same kind of faith, that is obedient faith, that Abraham is displaying in Romans chapter 4. It's not faith only, it's not assent to facts, it's an obedient faith. Some think that what this is in Romans 4 is it is using Genesis 15, 6 in application to a time when Abraham initially believed and trusted in God before that point. He was lost and in sin. He believed in God. It was accounted to him for righteousness. And now he is righteous. But it's not considering one point in Abraham's life where he was initially justified by faith. I want us to notice something. Genesis 15:6 is used in Romans 4, I think primarily in reference, according to the language and what is described, to the events of Genesis 17. But Genesis 15 is its own context. And that's before Genesis 17. And we'll notice some other things which show that it is a lifetime consideration 
of Abraham's faith that is accounted for righteousness. Notice verse 13. The promise that he would be heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. That tells me something. When God made that promise to him that he would be heir of the world, that through him all the nations of the earth would be blessed, it was through the fact that God saw he had faith and accounted it to him for righteousness. Not based on any law that had been given. According to the righteousness of faith. Back in Genesis 12 and verse 3, God made that promise initially. I know we revisited it. He revisited it in chapter 17 and verse chapter 15. But in verse 3 of Genesis 12, I will bless those who bless you, curse him who curses you, and you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now you get to verse 18 of Genesis or Romans 4. And what he does is he quotes, so shall your descendants be. That's from Genesis chapter 15. And then he quotes Genesis 15, 6 again. Therefore, it was accounted to him for righteousness. Not Genesis 12, Genesis 15. Now we get in Genesis 15 to a time where Abraham is wondering, God, you made this promise to me back here. I don't have a child yet. One of my own house shall be an heir, Eliezer of Damascus. And the Lord said, the one shall not be your heir, but one who shall come from your own body. And he brought him outside and looked and said, look at the skies, uh, the stars of the heavens. So shall your descendants be. And he believed the Lord and he accounted it to him for righteousness. That's what Paul is quoting. And he applies it at a time when the promise was initially given to where it was reiterated in Genesis 15. It was the faith that Abraham had there. Not his initial point of salvation. Notice in verse 17, beginning of Romans chapter 4, he speaks about another time. When it says, I made you a father of many nations. He was in the presence of him who gives life from the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. And hope, uh, hoping against, contrary to hope and hope he believed, he became the father of many nations. Notice verse 19. He did not, being weak in faith, he did not get, consider his own body already dead since he was about 100 years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb. He didn't waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God and being fully convinced that what he had promised he was able to perform and it was accounted to him for righteousness. In Genesis chapter 17, Abraham's 99 she is Sarah, that is, his past bearing children, and he does not waver. But he believed in God. You see that? It's not talking about this initial point. He is just demonstrating how essential faith is in justification. Abraham lived just before God. It's accounted to him for righteousness. How? By faith. It's not speaking about Abraham being justified by faith only. In Romans 1 and verse 5, it speaks about the obedience of faith. And in chapter 16 and verse 26, that is the bookend of this great epistle. And so when we see faith in Romans, he's speaking about a faith that in hearing within it is obedience. And I want to tell you that's Abraham's faith. When we read about Abraham's faith justifying him by God's grace in Romans 4, you can't divorce it from his submission to God's will. Remember in chapter 12 of Genesis in verses 1 and 4, he called him to go out to the place that he would receive as an inheritance In Hebrews 11 and in verse 8, he looks at that time and said, By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place he would receive as an inheritance. That was his faith back then. You fast forward a little bit to Genesis 12 and verses 8 through 9. The realization of his submission to that call. He's dwelling in tents. He's building an altar. He's calling on the name of the Lord. He's still journeying. And in Hebrews 11 and verse 9, he says he does that by faith, dwelling as a foreigner in this land. You progress all the way further to Genesis chapter 22. 
and God calls Abraham to go up to the Mount of Moriah, the land of Moriah, in one of the mountains, offer your son. He raises his knife to slay his son. The angel stopped him and said, Now I know you fear God. Did he back in Genesis 12? Yes. Did he in Genesis chapter 15? Yes. Did he in Genesis chapter 17? Yes. Did he in chapter 22 of Genesis? Yes. And you know what that looked like when he obeyed to offer his son? By faith, Hebrews 11 and verse 17. Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, in whom I always said, Isaac, your seed shall be called. Notice in chapter 2 of James, that same event is considered, and he says this, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that his faith was working together with his works, and by works faith was made perfect, and the scripture was fulfilled, which says, notice this, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. Genesis 15, 6. Applied to a time of working faith when Abraham obeyed. And so this justification by faith is not justification by faith. Only according to the righteousness of God, justification by faith is one that obeys. You notice some language here. In verse 5 of Romans 4, I know we're going fast. That's normal for me if you're visiting. Faith is accounted for righteousness. That word for is the Greek word ice. It means to or into. And so it's a, it's a preposition. You're not there yet. Faith puts you into a righteous state before God. And it's by faith. And, and we understand that and appreciate that. And that's apart from works. Not by perfection. He says that he whose lawless deeds are forgiven can't possibly be righteous by a perfect keeping of the works of the law. But notice in Romans 6. In verse 16, remembering, he said, we're justified in the same way by the same kind of faith. And in Romans 6 and verse 16, he says, you are slaves of that ones whose you obey, whether of sin leading to death, notice, or obedience leading to righteousness. There's that word again, too. Leading is supply. Obedience to righteousness. Was it by perfect works? Is obedience the works that he's talking about that we're not justified by? No, because he says you were slaves of sin, so it couldn't possibly be perfect works. You see the parallel there? Faith to or into righteousness is synonymous with obedience to or into righteousness, and both are separate from the works that Romans is talking about. It's not saying you're saved without obedience. It's saying you're saved by a faith that certainly does obey. And notice then, in chapter 6, what that was that they obeyed. Verse 17, God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered, and having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. It is the form of doctrine which represents that which takes place in the deliverance. You were slaves of sin, you presented yourselves as obedience to righteousness, you were set free from sin. You became slaves of righteousness. When did that transition occur? What's the form of doctrine they obeyed that brought them by faith into righteousness? He talked about it in verses 3 through 7. He says, Do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in newness of life. If we have been united together in the likeness of his death, Certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away, 
with that we should no longer be slaves of sin. He who has died has been freed from sin. Where does that occur? You're slaves of sin. You're delivered. The ransom is paid. You're redeemed. The propitiation of Jesus' blood satisfies God's wrath. We know all of that is playing into this because God can't justify without maintaining His justice. It says it's in baptism. When you died to sin, you were made alive to righteousness. But why was that effective? You notice in verse 3, he says you were baptized into his death. How are you baptized into someone's death? He's, he's saying you're baptized into the benefits, the efficacy of his death. You met the propitiation of Jesus' blood in baptism. And so when he says in Romans 3 that the propitiation is by his blood through faith, that is synonymous with being baptized into his death. That's where you meet that satisfaction of God's wrath. That's how God justifies us. I want us to notice some more language. In Romans 4, 5, again, you have this faith accounted to or into righteousness. And we understand by verses 6 through 8 that that could be said in this way, that it is accounted to or into the forgiveness of sins. Now, notice this interesting language. On the day of Pentecost, Peter said, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. You see that? That is to or into. That's the Greek word, ice, the remission of sins. You know what he could have said? Repent and let everyone be baptized by the name of Jesus Christ for righteousness so that righteousness would be put to your account because forgiveness of sins and having faith accounted as righteousness are the same thing. He's using the same language. And so it's beyond me how some will suggest that you're saying there's something powerful within the water itself. You're saving yourself by baptism. This is exactly God's plan to submit to so that He can pay the price for our sins and redeem us from every lawless deed. In Acts 2 and verse 38, putting it together with Matthew 26 and verse 28, makes it even more clear. His blood of the new covenant is shed for the remission of sins. Two are into the remission of sins. You have the blood, two are into the remission of sins. Baptism, two are into the remission of sins in chapter 2 and verse 38. In Hebrews, the ninth chapter, in verse 14, he speaks about how the blood of Christ cleanses our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission. In verse 22 of chapter 10, he shows where that blood was applied, where you have our hearts sprinkled. That's the language of the sprinkling of the blood on the Ark of the Testimony. We have our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience, same language of chapter 9 and verse 14, when our bodies are washed with pure water. What's he talking about, bodies washed with pure water? It's obviously baptism. In 1 Peter 3 and verse 21 then, he says that baptism saves us, an antitype of the being saved through the flood waters in the days of Noah. It saves us, but it's not a removal of the filth of the flesh, but an answer or an appeal for a good conscience. You got, why did he have to say it's not the removal of the filth of the flesh? Because your flesh gets wet. That's the actual act of submitting to baptism in the name of the Lord. It's water baptism according to Acts the 10th chapter in the name of the Lord. And that's where we receive a good conscience because we've demonstrated faith in the working of God. We have been lost in sin. We are utterly helpless. God must be just. If we want to be justified, He cannot overlook that sin. And I believe that He has a plan that works. And His plan is having faith in the blood of Jesus. It's not of perfect works. I'm not meriting my salvation. It is that justification by faith we read of in Romans. Colossians 2 and verse 11 then 
says, In Him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with Him in baptism, in which you also were raised with Him through faith in the working of God who raised Him from the dead. We begin with the question, What must I do to be saved? Realizing it's a loaded question. It means God is just and His wrath against sin must be satisfied. I've sinned and so I'm helpless. What do I do? How do I find myself right? before God. We just saw it. The blood of Jesus is what's necessary. That blood must be applied. God says it's applied by faith. And what the New Testament is clear about is that faith in the working of God, which raised Jesus from the dead, is expressed in baptism. And so we extend the invitation to you this afternoon. If you have not obeyed that truth, if you have not obeyed the gospel, your attempts at salvation are completely vain doesn't matter what anyone else says. This is God's plan, and that's what we're going to be judged by in the end. And so we have the water prepared. All things are ready, as we sing sometimes, come to the feast. The song is, I am coming, Lord, are you going to come? The invitation stands. Won't you come forward while we stand and sing?